Yes, yes, yes. Welcome back, everybody. Happy Friday afternoon. Welcome to the Entrepreneurial Web. I am your host, Jeremiah Fox. Before I introduce my guest, a quote of the week from one of my favorite entrepreneurial-like folks, Tony Robbins. He said, the people who are the most alive, driven, and fulfilled are those that seek to lead by a life of contribution and service to something greater than themselves. I can't think of a quote that more so embodies my guest this week, my dear friend, my neighbor, my partner in crime, Jack O'Connell. Welcome, Jack. Well, it's great being here, Jeremiah. Thank you. I wanted to start just by giving a little back info on Jack, and then we're going to let him talk for himself. Uh, Jack here is a founder and the first chairperson of the Windsor Terrace Food Co-op in Brooklyn. He was born in Manhattan, raised in Queens, and has lived with his wife Gretchen in Brooklyn for 45 years, where they raised their two kids. They are now adults. In the Windsor Terrace community, Jack served as the CEO of the Health and Welfare Council of Long Island, the network of the region's health and human service agencies from 1976 until 2006. From there, he became the senior advisor to the CEO of Nassau County's public health system and was responsible for creating the Long Island Federally Qualified Health Centers, the network of public health clinics on the island. In 2012, following the closing of Kifu, Jack started the organizing process that has resulted in the Windsor Terrace Food Co-op, now operational for nearly five years. He recently stepped aside from his role as chairperson and will serve as board emeritus. Welcome, Jack. It's great being here. So, Jack, you grew up in Queens. I did. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. Um, my, my family, my grandfather's, and grandmothers came from Ireland and lived on the Upper West Side. O'Connell's an Irish last yeah, name. So O'Connell and Dylan and uh, <laughs> McDonald, uh, and um, they wound up in in Sunnyside, Queens, which is and was uh, a very Irish Catholic neighborhood. Some of the best Irish markets yeah, so you can find still. And I, that's, I was born in Manhattan, and, the, and we lived, my parents and I lived in, in Sunnyside. And then I was almost four years old, and we moved to what was considered the rural suburbs of Flushing. <laughs> this was uh, 1800s or, no, or 1900s? this was 1947. And, uh, you, you know, you had to take a bus to get to the subway. Not a, not a horse. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, so I, I, I was, it was an Irish Catholic, Italian Catholic neighborhood. And we all went to Catholic school and we all hung around together. And uh, that was the beginnings of my life uh, until I went to school and wound up in Brooklyn at a later date. So you and I had a conversation once, uh, and, and maybe you can digress a little bit on that. I was asking you what life was like when you were a kid um, prior to, especially 1970s New York, when, when you know, the city was in major financial crisis and, and there was a real shift in the, the, the demographics of the city and the way people operated. And, and you had a great anecdote about um, 
when people started to get televisions. Do you remember telling <laughs> oh, me this story? Do you remember? I, I do. So, so can you? I'd, I'd love for you to lean into that a little bit, where you were describing the change. You remember as a child, one of your neighbors getting a television, and yeah. how you all went from everybody being outside to indoors. Go for it. Tell tell us a little bit about that. I, I, by the way, and that was probably I was probably seven, six or seven years old. And it's still, I still remember the event really clearly. And we lived in an apartment house, and there was a series of four apartment houses where all the kids lived that hung around together. And uh, one night, we did have a telephone. <laughs> <laughs> one night, we got a phone call about 6.30 at night, and Mrs. Hazel called up my, my mother, and she invited me over. They lived the next building over, to come over and watch TV. And my mother said, okay, you're going to go over to Georgie Hazel's house and watch TV. And I said, what's TV? (laughs) This is true. Anyway, I went over, and it was like the whole neighborhood was in the the Hazel's living room, and they were watching The Lone Ranger. And we all sat there totally hypnotized and transfixed on this screen with the story of the Lone Ranger. It was followed by a detective story, Mr. and Mrs. North. When that show was over, Mr. Hazel stood up and said, okay, everyone go home. (laughs) But none of us had TVs. And this was the first exposure any of us had to watching a TV. So I went home, next building over, And my parents were sitting on the couch, and they said, now, I'm only seven or eight years old. What was it like? What what was it like watching TV? And it was so stunning because this was the beginning, little did we know at the time, of an era when I know on Sealy Street, the street I live in now in Brooklyn, where people would sit out on their porches literally all night long. And in the summertime, they would sleep on chaise lounges on, the, on their porches. As TV became bigger, people went inside. And they were less on their porch. And the same thing happened in our neighborhood as we as kids would congregate uh, after dinner until our parents said, you've got to be home when the streetlights go on. Uh, so it, it, was a, it was a matter of the entire social network of the neighborhood changed as TV became more significant. Or we saw ball games, or we saw movies, or, or we saw special shows, and people were now at home. Right, and, and in this first conversation you and I had about it, it was kind of predicated on me asking about when did small business, like local, super local small business, which is what the city's landscape was like prior to this, there was a, there was a shifting point, and and you described how television affected that. Can you can you digress on that as well? Well, you know, uh, as as you're asking that, making that point, I I still remember the, that the block across the street from our apartment had it was all little local stores. And the shoemaker's name was Jimmy the Shoe. And <laughs> he was uh, a, he was a shoemaker he, with that name. What did he do on no, the side? No, Jimmy no, the he, Shoe. He fixed shoes. And there and then there was Joe Newspaper. And there was another guy that had a donut store. He was Richie Donut. <laughs> in other words, the neighborhood related to these stores in such 
a personal way that when they went into the store, the guy or the woman who was running the store at that time, whether it was a pharmacy or a donut store or what have you, people knew each other and there was a connection that they had personal. All of a sudden, a bohack opened in our, our neighborhood and all of a sudden, it was a supermarket and people, needles to say, because of price and choice, started going to the supermarket mm -hmm. instead of going to the little store that we now would call a bodega. Uh, and that was the beginning. It was the door was opening to these larger, um, more corporate type of entities that, um, that didn't have that personal approach. In the beginning, some of these supermarket type of places did have like Al was the, the vegetable guy and mm -hmm. Joe was the dairy guy. But, but that broke down after a while and it, was, it, it, was very, it became a very corporate type of entity. And, and you had also mentioned to me prior, uh, once television really in, invaded people's lives, the ads for television started to invade people's lives. So first it was the television and everybody said, ooh, we got to get that television. Yes. Got to have that television. And then the car advertisements started to appear on the television <laughs> and people started to say, ooh, I got to get one of those cars. And the cars led to the big shopping centers farther away. Oh, yes. Where, you know, these corporations could put up big, big, whether it was, you know, lawn mm -hmm. furniture or whatever. And, and the department store uh, started, the, the large department store started to arise. And so people were spending their money on the television to get the car to drive outside of their neighborhood, even outside of their town, to spend their money at stores with people that were very far removed from their lives and it, and it had a detrimental effect on the local business, right? Oh, uh, as you're telling the story, I, I, I personally can relate to it. We, we, we were one of the last families in the neighborhood, as I recall, that to, to get a car. And my father got a Nash, which was sort of a joke in the, in the neighborhood because everybody else had a Chevy or yeah, a I Ford. Think, I think know. they became skateboards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember my parents. Now I'm, I'm like in the eighth grade or maybe even in high school. And my parents driving out to Nassau County to go to Corvettes, which was this new store that sold everything. And it... And they would come home with all sorts of packages and bags. And it would just, and I'd say, where were you? We, we were at this new store, Corvettes, and they sell everything. And it was a change that was so dramatic that shopping at little stores on 164th Street just ceased. Yeah. And so at that point, you started to see a lot of those small businesses shut down completely and not be replaced with it. Did it end up being just vacancies? Well, what, what started to happen was they didn't shut down, per se. Like I'm thinking about Jimmy the Shoe, the shoemaker. It's just that he got he older. He had a side job. Yeah, he was no, doing something <laughs> on the side. Jimmy the Shoe, that guy had another hustle. Yeah. You know it. Uh, Jimmy just got old, and he retired, and he closed the store down. And um, I, I couldn't tell you, I, I, I couldn't tell you at this point what replaced it because I, it, it just 
wasn't something that was on my mind or right. you know it was just like oh there's a different story Jim, there Jimmy the shoe is gone <laughs> yeah but it, it, yeah and that that was it Jimmy the shoe was gone yeah and uh, so it was something that you really didn't pay a whole lot of attention to what filled the store that Jimmy the Shoe used to be in. I mean, I know there were there were bars. Well, I remember the, there was one bar on that block that the son of Sam actually shot somebody. He was going around shooting people in the city mm -hmm. that uh, the son of Sam actually assaulted someone who came out of that bar. So, And then a, a few years ago, I drove through the neighborhood and... That bar doesn't exist anymore. It's something else, you know. And yet, that was a that was a community right obelisk. Right. I, and you've also talked to me about once you moved to Brooklyn, Seventh uh, Avenue in Brooklyn and Park Slope, which is now home to some very expensive uh, commercial real estate and mm -hmm. very chic business operations that they were all empty and had been set on fire. And I yeah. know other parts of the city suffered uh, some even worse fate and it's just remarkable to me how like how did a place that was because again in back in the 60s that was a, a prominent area too for the most part i believe it it wasn't it wasn't burned out it wasn't in shambles well, the, the, the storefronts were i went to high school in brooklyn and the high school was in fort green and we we used to bowl <laughs> at a bowling alley on 7th avenue in flatbush and the houses weren't called brownstones. They were called brown houses. And the area was not called Park Slope. It was called South Brooklyn. And wow. the houses that now are these four, five, six million dollar houses were rooming houses where uh, single adults lived. So um, that, was in the, that was in the late 50s, early 60s. Certainly by the time we moved to Park Slope in 75, the change had really started to happen. Awesome. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of those changes and what led up to the opening of the Windsor Terrace Food Co-op. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Entrepreneurial Web with my guest, Jack O'Connell. You're listening to The Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. 
And we're back. You're listening to The Entrepreneurial Web. I'm your host, Jeremiah Fox, here with my special guest, Jack O'Connell. We were just discussing how the city landscape changed, especially in terms of small business, from, say, the 60s onward uh, into into the 70s and 80s, which was, was a bleak time for small business. It was definitely a rough time for everybody in the city. Uh, but now we're, we're experiencing quite the revival, but it is not without its challenges, and, and we'll talk about that here in a moment. But I just wanted to reconnect everybody with Jack and, and kind of how Jack and I, how, how at least you came onto my radar. I don't know if you remember our earliest encounters or your first memories oh, of sure me, do. but uh, so Jack and I both live in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Windsor Terrace, and uh, we first met uh, through through my wine store, Juicebox Wines and Spirits on Prospect <laughs> Avenue, where Jack was... I don't want to say he drinks a lot, but uh, he is Irish. <laughs> um, no, no, I'm kidding. Uh, for those of you that live in the neighborhood and, and go to the store, Jack has always been a large supporter of Dante Rubino's Novecento Malbec. Probably kept him afloat through his rough times. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, but he's, he's a avid supporter of uh, California Chardonnay, for sure. We've, I've even had him do some industry tastings with me and help me pick some of the Chardonnays. We're going to serve and pour. But so in 2011, uh, my partners and I did a pop up wine bar where there used to be a coffee shop. Uh, at the time, it was still a coffee shop that closed at 4 p.m. and they had a beer and wine license and they had a coffee bar. It was a long bar that they would service coffee across. And we got the idea of subletting the place from them in the evening. We revamped it, we hung curtains and covered all their coffee gear and their muffin gear and, and put new lights in and lit candles and called it Nanny Goat Hill, which was a tribute to the the neighborhood back in the 1800s when it was farmland and there were lots of nanny goat running around. And we did a small limited menu of food and beer and wine. And the New York Times caught wind of it and thought it was a great piece. So they came and did an article. And Jack's daughter, who was living in Vietnam at the time, is she that was, correct? Yeah. She was. She saw the article. She did. Across across the world, and said, "Dad, what's happening in the neighborhood?" She grew up in the neighborhood and yes. remembers when there was a Domino's she, she pizza. Moved in probably, when she was three. <laughs> yeah. yes, it was a much different seat. And she said, "What is going on in Windsor Terrace?" And I had known Jack. I probably knew your name. I definitely knew you uh, by sight and by voice. But I remember you coming into the store and saying, "Jeremiah, what you're doing is." It's amazing. And it, it wasn't about the food. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, this guy's got great food. He's pouring great wine. It was, it was exactly what we were trying to gauge. And Sam and I sp- spoke about this last week on the show. When you have the opportunity to do a pop-up or, or dip your finger in the water, dip your toe in the water to see what, what community response is like, you know, sure, you, you need to have a good product. If you're, if you're peddling bad stuff, you know, you're going to pay the price for that. It wasn't so much about that. It was what's the response of the neighborhood to locally owned business, to people participating and taking control of, of fate to an extent. And, and your response really embodied that and, and gave me lots of confidence and let me know like as you never know <laughs> you never know am i doing the right thing is this is this going to blow up in my face are people into this and they're just like this guy's crazy or this idea sucks and and when you came in and said that it wasn't about like you were so pumped to have a place to go out and and eat it was it was the participation in an area mm-hmm. that you saw value in mm-hmm. 
And that's when I knew, okay, this is, this is the right direction to, to, to continue with this. And, and it's given me a lot of fuel. So, so thank you for that. It's always been, you've always been a great inspiration, but that leads me to my next question is what attracted you to Windsor Terrace and, and, you know, made you decide this is where we want to, this is where we want to raise kids. This is where we want to have our, our, our home and raise our children. That, that's a, an excellent question um, that needs a bit of a, a bit of historical perspective. We lived in Park Slope. We rented in 1975. Um, one of the more humorous sides of moving in 1975 to Park Slope was my wife and I weren't married at the time. And we actually went to landlords to rent uh, an apartment. And they would say, they would say, are, are you guys married? And no. And they said, well, I can't rent to you. Now, think of that. That's 1975. You know, you needed, you needed my buddy Sam's number, <laughs> Sam Ebelstein. You remember, he helped us with the co-op lease. He's actually coming on next week. He would have he taken care of that for so, you. So, well, we did get, we did get <laughs> married. I mean, and we've been married for 45 years. So, but Park Slope at the time was, was changing. And it was changing to the extent that those houses that we called brown houses in the 1950s and 1960s, we're now becoming brown stones. Did, I, just a quick question. Sorry to interrupt. Why were they called brown houses? Because they were brown. They, it wasn't because they were like considered low level. No, no. Like sewage. They, they, they were just brown houses. Brown houses. You no, know, okay. they were, their color was brown. Right. So they were so brown the, houses. So the brownstone catchword hadn't, hadn't caught uh, on yet. And maybe in some areas yeah. it had. You know, on 7th Avenue and Flatbush wasn't exactly, in, you know, the... The, the gold the right gold especially about place. the 70s right yeah and the 60s uh, well, no, it was this, more is, of a, this is 50s and 60s oh, okay um so when the time came and we we paid uh when, when we first moved in we paid 250 dollars a month for a two-bedroom for the apartment. bathroom <laughs> and uh on second street uh, our neighbor on the corner was uh, pete hamill and we'd see, I, we'd see Shirley MacLaine walking up the yeah, block every yeah. now and then. I, was, I, I, I wanted to see Jackie Kennedy. It was in later years that I found out that Barack Obama lived four doors down from us. Really? But, but we didn't know Barack, and unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but the landlord ultimately started raising the rent. Uh, so we said, my wife and I said, we had two children at the time. And we said, this, we, have to, we have to do something about this. It's time. And where did we move to? Well, the slope at that point was where you could live was very expensive, and there was a lot of the slope that wasn't ready for people to move into. Right. The houses were not in good shape. Uh, Prospect Heights, where, where were we going to move to? And we, I was, we were both caught by Windsor Terrace. It, it seemed to be a very, very strong family atmosphere in, in the neighborhood. And so we, we hooked up with, with Windsor Terrace and moved in. We moved into a block that I jokingly say at this point that people, the only way they leave is they die. And the block that we live on, uh, in the 35 years we've lived there, two people have, two families have moved out in that 35 years, whereas right. probably 10 or 15 
families have died. You know, in other words, right. and then no, nothing serious. I mean, they they got to their nineties and mm-hmm. and and that's the 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 stability and the solidity of the block and the interpersonal interactions are very very right. attractive to us. Right, and and. Windsor Terrace, we have witnessed the evolution of Windsor Terrace as well. Going from that literally 1940s, 1950s uh, group of families who were probably Italian and Irish, uh, now it's much more of a multicultural neighborhood. It's a younger neighborhood as people are moving in. Uh, it, 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 its attractiveness remains. Well, and the property values are attractive if you've got yeah. the bread and, yeah. and, and yeah. we see more house flipping now because mm-hmm. those, those houses are, are commodities now and they're, they're looked at as sound investment and yeah. the property values continue in the, in the 15 years that I've been there. I've seen property values double Yes, and, and there's no apparent yes. ceiling to that. So I'm curious because you, you moved in an age prior to Craigslist. <laughs> how, did, how did you stumble upon Windsor Terrace? I mean, it's very close in proximity well, to Park it, Slope, yeah, but uh, yeah. how, did, how did one find a, a, an apartment? And did you buy immediately? Yes, we bought, yeah. yeah. So yeah. did you just go to a realtor or did uh, you... Uh, my wife, Gretchen, because we knew we had to move, that, that things were just... It, our kids were getting older. And so she went on a... A house tour, might we call it, mm-hmm. for six or seven months. And one night she came home and she said, you know, I, I found a house today that we could move into. And I said, wow, okay. Now the problem was, was a house too expensive or was it in such bad shape that you were going to have to put a lot of money into it to right. resurrect it, might we say. And she said, I, I found a house that we could live in. Well, the next day I went to work, and, we, and we, we didn't, the conversation didn't go further. It would be, okay, we'll go see it on the weekend. The next day I was at work, and I got a call from the real estate agent. And she said, Mr. O'Connell, um, that house on Sealy Street, would you make an offer? I hadn't even seen the house. And I said, well, I have no idea. She said, make an offer. Why didn't you just go online and look at the pictures? <laughs> uh, so I said, I'll have to speak to my wife first. So I said, Gretchen, I called her up, her up at work, and I said, so how much, how much should we offer? And um, we came up with a number, and um, there was a settlement literally within about 48 hours. So it went from not having something to within 72 hours uh, going to contract on a house. Yeah, amazing. I've heard my my wife gets her hair done at Yolanda's on East Fourth mm-hmm. and Fort Hamilton, uh, right next yes. to the to the church there. And she's been there for a long time. And she said back in the day, you that's where you you did your negotiating. You come into yeah. the hair salon or you go to the church and say, hey, you know, Bobby wants to buy a house. Yeah, and and deals were cut that way and cut quickly. And, uh-huh. and uh, you know, not always, you know, necessarily going through a, a real estate agent or broker. You yeah. know, you had to facilitate the process somehow. But often it was it was just done right there. And, uh, you know, prior to Craigslist and and the rest of the way that we all the online postings and such. So the evolution of what happened that brought us closer together in the neighborhood was the closing of the only supermarket in the neighborhood. I wouldn't have called it a super market. It was a market. 
It was nothing yes. very super about it. No. It too harkened back to the 1950s pretty yes. much. Even in the early 2000s, you'd walk in and it was yes. doo-wop playing on the radio. And some of the people that worked there looked like they'd been there <laughs> since the 1950s. Wait a second now. My, both of my kids worked as cashiers there so yeah. <laughs> when they were teenagers. I'm exaggerating. I like to tell a good story. <laughs> So the closing of the key food led to something very interesting in the neighborhood, uh, almost a coalition of sorts and, uh, and an occupation of a parking lot and yes. what eventually came to be known as the Windsor Terrace Co-op. So the Windsor Terrace Food Co-op. So after this brief break, we're going to come back and hear Jack's account of how that all came to be and his partici- participation in that and how it brought a community together. We'll be back. With Jack O'Connell, in just a few moments, you're listening to the Entrepreneurial Web. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi. I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. And we're back. Happy Friday, everybody. You're listening to The Entrepreneurial Web. I'm your host, Jeremiah Fox, and we are here with my very esteemed guest, Jack O'Connell. We've been chewing the fat over small business, especially in Brooklyn, particularly the neighborhood of Windsor Terrace, where in 2015, Jack was a pillar, a cornerstone, (laughs) the backbone of the opening of the Windsor Terrace Food Co-op. I would love to hear him elaborate on how that whole thing started. We finished our last segment by talking about how the only market in the neighborhood, a a pretty meager key food on the corner of Prospect Avenue and 11th Avenue, shut its doors. And we all learned that the property was sold to a Walgreens. And there was quite a blowback on that. Jack, Mm. could you elaborate yeah, uh, blowback is almost an understatement. Exactly. You know? <laughs> I, I was shocked. For, not that the store closed. I, 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 it was a pretty underwhelming market to was. begin with. And, and my wife and I had, by that point, figured out how to go to other supermarkets. Uh, rather, you know, you'd go to key food for a loaf of bread or something. Right, you know? right. But... 
I was, there was a community meeting called by Assemblyman Jim Brennan and Brad Lander, who was our councilman. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I don't even know what inspired me to go up to it. I guess I just wanted to hear what people had to say. And I walked into the auditorium, and there, there were at least 400 people there. Wow. It was a mob scene. That's like that's a quarter of the population of Windsor Terrace. <laughs> well, <laughs> and it was stunning. And so I sat there, and people got up, and there was a lot of very heavy-duty anger. Yeah, people were pissed. And negativity. Mm -hmm. And it generally led to comments and suggestions that were untenable. Oh, well, why, didn't, why doesn't the city buy this from the guy? You know, why, <laughs> you know, and you just knew this wasn't going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And then one guy, Mark Herberg, as, who became our friend, got up and said, maybe it's time we started a co-op. And it, it just hit me at that moment. And I was coming to the end of my professional career. At the, I was at the uh, Nassau Public Health System. And I thought, well, that, this is sort of interesting. So I went up to Mark after the meeting, and I said, were you serious about that? And he said, sure, why not? And I said, well, let me, let me talk to Jim Brennan, and let's see if we can pursue at least steps to try to pull this off. He said, great. Well, there was a second community meeting. It was attended by fewer people, but they were sort of, it was like a follow-up meeting that Brennan and Lander had called. And uh, Jim had said to me, Jim Brennan had said, well, you, why don't you get up and you can talk about the co-op? And I got up and I simply said, you know, at the last meeting, someone talked about a co-op. If you're interested in doing a co-op, let's all meet in the corner in the back of the room at the end of this meeting. I had no idea whether there would be one person, 10 people. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. So the meeting was over, and there were about 15 people standing in the corner. So we said, well, we'll take everybody's email address, and we'll set up a meeting. And we did. And it w the first meeting was at Brand Lander's office, the city councilman's office. Mm -hmm. And essentially, there were people who belonged to Park Slope Food Co-op. So there were people who knew how a co-op operated. Right. So let's let's elaborate that on, on that for a minute because some of our listeners might not be familiar with it or might not mm -hmm. have access. So the Park Slope Food Co-op, which is in Park Slope, which is a neighboring neighborhood mm -hmm. to Windsor Terrace, is, I believe, the largest members-only food co-op in the country. It's quite possibly. They have 17,000 members. They do it's a big one. <laughs> it, they, it's big. And, and they they've been in operation since 73? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so you have to be a member. Yes, to shop there. To shop yeah. there. To be a member, you have to work. You have to work, right. Uh, I believe theirs is two hours and... Two and a half and hours and every, every four, four weeks. weeks something yeah. to that effect. There, there are other circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's investment money and membership money yes. involved in it. Uh, and if you, if you miss your shift, you get blocked. Yeah. You get can't shop. Yeah. 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 Um, but the, the, it's a, it's a nonprofit food co-op. Yes. Uh, so the, the products are only marked up enough for operational yes. costs, future investment. Yes. And, uh, and, and it's put back into the community and back into its, its members pockets, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, uh, lower prices yes. for the products that they that they sell. 
Uh, but what was kind of amazing about Park Slope was the, the quality as well yes. of their product. I yes. was a member there for a solid 10 years and having a food background and always just being very particular about what I put in my body. Mm-hmm. I found that they, even in New York City, it was hard to find uh, even the most expensive stores that, that had yeah. the level of quality in produce and, mm-hmm. and access to certain ingredients as Park Slope Food Co-op did. And the Windsor Terrace Food Co-op is modeled similarly, correct? Yes, uh, it In is. terms that you have to be a member, you have to participate, there's an investment program, uh, and we do our best to pick, I'm also a member, uh, to... Uh, <laughs> To pick the best ingredient, the best the best products, the best ingredients, right. uh, and work with small local farmers and small food producers, mm-hmm. and and give uh, our members and our community access to to really outstanding uh, products, as well as giving them those products at at the best possible prices. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the the ethos, the culture behind the food co op, but. But getting one together <laughs> is a whole different story. So what happened after you said some of these people were Park Slope Food Co-op members? Right. What was what was the result of that initial meeting of 15 people in the corner of Brad Lander's office? Well, because of my own personal past, I had been involved in the creation and initiation of a, of a variety of might we call them community groups or groups that had a, a, a common purpose. Mm-hmm. So I knew that this wasn't a matter of simply having a couple of meetings and then all of a sudden we'd have a store to, to walk in. I knew that there needed to be a process to have a lot of people buy in. Yeah. So we spent three or four months. We'd meet maybe once every second week or maybe third week. And to talk about expanding the profile of what we were up to. And ultimately, we did have a community meeting that about 40 people showed up to. I was quite surprised. Uh, this was probably three or four months after the, the initial, the initial, conve- you know, the right. initial convening. And so we decided to break down and to do certain things like make bylaws and to to work towards incorporation the kinds mm. of things that needed to be done to set up the structure right but the issue that we all knew that was in front of us because we had the same objective which was good food healthy food at reasonable prices um so we had we had an issue now, Windsor Terrace is a confined neighborhood. Uh, to its east, you have Prospect Park, and to your west, you have Greenwood Cemetery. So there's no expansion. And to, right. the, to the north and the big, south, you're... Big green spaces, 500-acre-plus yes. green spaces on either yeah. side. So the commercial space in Windsor Terrace is not enormous, which meant that we ha- had difficulty finding a place finding a place that we could afford, and finding a place that uh, we could do business. And, and how early on, after, after your first couple meetings, did the search for a space begin? This was, what, 2013, 2014? 2012, 2012, oh, wow. 2013. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the search began, but it didn't begin in earnest right. because there were so many other things that had to be done uh, to organize ourselves. And we all knew that. And we talked to people from other food co-ops, not simply Park Slope, but Green Hill <clears throat> and others. Mm -hmm. And they gave us sort of a, a roadmap as to what to do. And the, 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 the common phrase was, you have to organize your neighborhood. Yeah. And that was the key to the, that, that everyone told us. That's the key. So we just kept expanding our email list and kept expanding the information we'd get out there. And we did start after about a year with uh, limited seriousness looking for a place to rest. But there were, there were at least eyes, because I remember, you know, this was not long after you know, Occupy Wall Street. And I jokingly, mm -hmm. you know, called the, 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 the movement Occupy Walgreens because yeah. there were literally like old ladies from the neighborhood with yes. picket signs in the parking lot. Yes. So there was a tension. There was whether they were they were actually going to follow through. It wasn't simply just a, a blank canvas. There was actually yeah. there's actually some attention uh, to leverage. And, mm -hmm. and what was the slogan? Uh, green beans, not Walgreens. That's right. That was like a real thing. Yes. And uh, it, it showed that there, there were people they were being very specific about what their need was. Yes. They were being very vocal. And like you said earlier, there was, there was some anger behind it. So there was, there was opportunity there. What, what I find interesting in what you said is that you all dealt with the, the corporation aspect of it, the bylaws and everything. Well, it's a structure. For, the structure, it, it, it was yeah. a structure. It simply wasn't incorporated. Which that is something I've the, never had to do before, yeah. like as a private business owner. You just yeah. you get your concept, you put your business plan yeah, out, yeah. You, get your, you get your money, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and, and start to look for a space. But you all approached the, the basically the board, the we board had of directors. Community. We had to build community. Right. We had to build the information stream. And we had to get people knowledgeable about what we were up to. And we had to, to sell it as an idea that people would want to participate in. And, you know, it, it got to the point that sometimes I'd walk down the street and I'd run into somebody and they say, oh, you guys are trying to start a, a co-op. Wow, that's terrific. So um, it, it, it wasn't simply setting up a structure. We knew that we had to build an audience that would participate but you you knew you needed a board of directors. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, decision making group. Yes, right. there had to be a decision making group at the base. And how there. how did that come about? How did how did that become obvious to yeah, you? Yeah, well, well, and it became obvious. That's those are the things that I had done right. during my life. So, uh, so you but, just knew that. But I knew that we needed to that we couldn't be inviting everybody once a month to meetings because people would just say, oh, the heck with this. I'm mm -hmm. not going to bother with this. But I we knew that if there were seven or eight people who took it on their shoulders to to move this agenda and idea forward. Well, then, but it would require work. And that meant that people that were going to be on what became the board, they had to come to meetings once a month mm -hmm. where, we where we would talk about progress, about what we were doing and how we were doing it and how we were building support. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, just the idea of running into people and, mm -hmm. and they say, hey, you're the... You're the <laughs> That's basically how, you know, it had been a few years since you and I had our initial encounter yes. talking about uh, Nanny Goat Hill and, and adding value to the neighborhood. And uh, I remember Deirdre, who used to work at the wine store, saying to me one day, oh, uh, I'm going to the food co-op meeting tonight. You know, 
you know, the food co-op that Jack's doing. And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, yeah, you know, Jack, he's, he's starting a food co-op in the neighborhood. I'm like, what? He didn't tell me. I didn't know about it. So we're going to take a brief break. When we get back, I'll, you know, talk briefly about how I became familiar with the Windsor Terrace food co-op, some of my involvement. And then we'll talk about some of the obstacles that one may encounter in any business, but uh, certainly uh, even a nonprofit, you know, ideally minded food co-op is not immune to. So mm-hmm. we'll check back with Jack O'Connell. This is the Entrepreneurial Web. I'm your host, Jeremiah Fox. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Entrepreneurial Web. I'm your host, Jeremiah Fox. We're here with special guest Jack O'Connell, one of the founders of the Winter Terrace Food Co-op, chairman of the board for the first five, five years, five, six years, six years. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to wrap up today uh, talking about how I became involved in the food co-op, and and then just once we got operational, what what happened? So I was just detailing how one of my employees tells me at work one day, I'm going to this meeting tonight. You know, Jack from the neighborhood, he's starting a food co-op. Like, how did he not tell me about this? <laughs> I'm the local business guy. I'm the business guru, and I wasn't included. No. I, I, was just, I was just kind of amazed and shocked because it was something I'd always wanted to do, being in food and also uh, just having a lot of empathy for people and, and, and wanting to participate in people's lives. It's just always something I've, I've been interested in and, and making people happy, especially through food. I've always found that to be an easy thing to do. You prepare a great meal for somebody and they just look at you in a, a different way. You could have really pissed them off earlier, yeah. but if you hit their taste buds with those amino acids, they're, they're just like, oh my God, you're, you're angelic all of a sudden. And, and making food available, really awesome food, what I thought was really awesome food, available to people at, at 
at a price that they could they could swallow mm-hmm. um, was always important to me. So I joined the Park Slope Food Co-op in, I think it was 2005, blown away by the whole operation. I'd done food retail before. I'd worked in organic markets as a kid. So it was something I'd always uh, been interested in, and, and that business structure really fascinated me. And even applied for a full-time, they do hire yes. people there. You, could, you can have a salaried you know, position, uh, with a long-term track and paid vacation and all that good stuff. And I, I was so into it that I actually applied for a job there. I didn't get it, uh, which is probably a good thing because where would we be today if I had gotten that job? Um, so the, the idea of being a part of a, a new co-op was, it was always on my back burner. It was always something I was like, I'd, I'd never done anything nonprofit, which I, I'd wanted to, to, jump into. I wanted to see what that felt like after doing, you know, profit structured businesses. So I was really intrigued. And I remember coming to a meeting that to that meeting, Deirdre told me it's going to be at the Knights of Columbus on what is it? 10th Avenue, 10th Avenue, 16th street, really old, old school, you know, fraternal organization. And, uh, I walk in the door and there's Jack, like great to see Jack and a couple other people that I knew from the neighborhood, which was, which was, always, you know, a great show of support. Like, okay, there's, there's something here. There's some people. And I remember just listening to what everybody was saying and, and how it was, it was, it was really naive in like kind of a cute way, but I was like, I got to say something. Everybody was like, so we got to find a space. We, we want to get a one year lease. Right. And I'm like, no, it's not an apartment. Like you want a long, what is, okay. So you, you get a one year lease for a business, you're doing well. And the next year the landlord's like, Oh, you're doing good. I'm going to raise your rent five grand. Cause yeah. I see you doing well. So I remember just saying, okay, I have to speak up. I have to say something. I was like, no guys, sorry. You want a five year lease at least. And you want, you want an option in your favor so you can make a decision based off of your success after that. And then it, the, the conversation, people are like, okay, that's good. And the conversation kept going and you know, I remember saying a couple of things and finally at the end, people like a couple of people coming up to me and saying, OK, we need you to stick around like, <laughs> you, you, you know, a little something about something. And, yes. and that became my involvement in, in the Windsor Terrace Food Co-op. And it's continued to this day. And I take a lot of pride in being involved with it. And it's, it's just been a, a huge source of, uh, of knowledge and information, but uh, community building. And, and it was really mm-hmm. amazing to see so many people and continue. I mean, people have come and gone. People have moved away. People have realized it's not for them. But we continue to attract people. And they're so blown away by the fact that it's a community-owned grocery store. Mm-hmm. And the way you participate with that is much different than, say, if you come into my restaurant. Yeah. You come into my wine store. And, and that's, that's been really fascinating. That being said, it is not immune to the whims of the market, uh, we basically uh, had to open just like as a regular store. The state doesn't care that we're a nonprofit. We still have to pay yeah. sales tax. The Department of Agriculture still inspects us the way they do yes. any other store. Mm-hmm. Could you elaborate on some of the, the hurdles and some of the obstacles that you weren't expecting uh, after I remember we've had many conversations about this and you just saying like, what this, this is a thing this happens. And I'm like, yeah, this happens every day to me. And you're just blown away by it. What were some of the things over the last five years since we became operational and actually found a space that really blew you away that you weren't expecting? Well, I had never run, I had run an organization a nonprofit organization that was a rather large one for 30 years. 
and then was part of a, a public health system that was literally a billion-dollar operation mm -hmm. for, for five years. But I had never done retail. I had never done small store. I had never done something like that. So th the real eye-opener for me was that I have greater empathy now for s small business owners. My life didn't depend upon whether or not the co-op continued. But the folks who run small stores, their lives do there depend. Were, there were a couple of receiving shifts I thought your life yeah. was going <laughs> to yes, end yes. because of it. <laughs> yeah. But the realization of living hand to mouth, of paying for what you're going to sell later, uh, is really difficult to deal with emotionally. Mm. And if if I had to raise a family or to to make my livelihood doing that, I, I would consider that difficult because it, it's a real day-by-day -day situation. You can project for a weekend that you're going to make X and then it snows or it rains or as happened the other day in our neighborhood in Windsor Terrace, there was an, a house, house exploded. Up, right. <laughs> uh, so so there, you're, you're at the mercy of so many forces. I, I th that, is the biggest, that, that is the biggest thing that happened to, to, to me, my understanding of what people do and and put their lives on the right, line the running yeah. stores like that. That's that's a big time because those bills are coming in regardless. Totally, right? you, totally, you, and totally. If, and if you're not bankrolled, if you yeah. don't have a bunch of capital yeah. or investors, yes. Uh, and and that's the, that's that's another element of it is that not running a business, not ever running a business like that. One doesn't understand how cash comes in mm -hmm. and how do you get access to the markets. And it's, it's a whole new learning experience of, of what these businesses are like. But let me turn the, the coin on this, though. When I, when I started this, one of my great interests was in developing community within Windsor Terrace. Mm -hmm. And why that was important is that the units that were the center of the community in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the Knights of Columbus, the Veterans of Foreign War, the American Legion, uh, Holy Name Catholic Church, these were all institutions that the new people coming in weren't part of. Right. And so in my mind, one of the things I was aiming at was to create an environment where people from the community could come together and exchange ideas, exchange food, uh, to nourish each other. Uh, th that was very important. And that is, as I look back after our five years of operation, one of the things that I'm, I'm most proud of and feel the best about is how people interact in the store when they come in and how they interact when they come to a members meeting. That it's really, it's really building community and having people uh, rely on one another and know each other and tend to share their life experiences. So you feel successful in terms of that, that you've, oh, you've accomplished that goal? Well, it, 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 
we don't accomplish right. the goal. Right. It's an evolving goal. Right. So Absolutely. that you, you want to build on that every time. But, but, but that, you feel like you've experienced a certain I, level I think of success we, it, it started, yes. It yeah. has been initiated. I would agree. Uh, living in the neighborhood for as long as I have and participating in a number of different businesses, seeing the response and that initial, uh, so mm-hmm. we did a we did a kind of a meet and greet on the sidewalk, totally impromptu, yes. permit free. There was some free wine. There was some free food yes. from Brooklyn Commune. Uh, there was some live music. And how much money did we did people to contribute? Well, that day? we, we like, ultimately we had to raise twenty five thousand dollars to start. We ultimately did raise that right. in a three week period. Right. We paid nine thousand dollars to sign the lease. $9,000 to sign the lease. So that was all part of it. It was that community building and then having 250 people within a three-week period give us $100 Going. each. Yeah. It was fantastic. It was a wonderful time. So if you're interested in the Winter Terrace Food Co-op, you can visit their website, winterterracefoodcoop.com. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'd like to thank you, Jack, for being thank on the you, show. Jeremiah. It's been awesome. Hopefully you all got some uplifting messages and a little insight in case you're considering doing this in the future. I'm Jeremiah Fox. You're listening to the Entrepreneurial Web. We'll, we'll check you out. Check us out next Friday at noon. Thank you. Have a great weekend, everybody. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history. 
its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 